0: Welcome to the Stephen Mansfield Audio Podcast. I want to do a different kind of podcast than I have ever done before. I want to talk to you about speaking and the Republican debates. Now, you have probably heard more about the debates, more about the slicing and dicing of the content, more about the misbehavior of Donald Trump than you have even wanted to. But I want to come at it from a slightly different perspective. We are all going to be exposed to lots of public speaking in the next 18 months or so. Between now and the 2016 presidential election, you will watch dozens of debates. You will watch conventions. You will have all sorts of stuff come before your eyes. And at the same time, many of you who listen to my podcast are leaders of some kind, you do public speaking, uh, you preach, you teach, you talk to your company, you speak in the military, uh, all kinds of things. And so what I don't talk about very much in my podcast is uh, that my firm uh, does a lot of communications uh, consulting and does a lot of leadership consulting. We work with people in their speeches, we work in their speaking style, we analyze speaking styles, we work uh, for many people in DC, people in the corporate world, etc. I'm not saying all that is an advertisement, I'm saying we spend a lot of time analyzing speaking styles, contents, crafting speeches, working with people. And so I wanna, wanna give you some thoughts about the, the actual process of speaking in a debate like that, which will relate to what many of you do as public speakers. I've got about 10 things here that I noticed uh, were being done or not being done the other night in the debate, and I want you just to uh, keep an eye on it. I realize that what some of you would prefer that I do is analyze the content of the speech. I've got to tell you, quite frankly, I'm absolutely over Trump. I wish he'd drop out. Uh, I I think we've got some other very, very good people there, and we need to be having a serious airing of ideas that is not happening, so I'm not that interested at this point, this early, in uh, getting into the content. I will down the road, but let me talk to you about some practical issues of speaking. They are all pretty good speakers. The one who could improve the most, amazingly, is also already a good speaker, and that's Mr. Kasich. I like Kasich very much. Uh, I think he is has been a fine governor. I think he's been a fine broadcaster. Uh, he is the one who could improve the most. He has the most unusual mannerisms, uh, and I and again I like him and, and and would like to see him improve in that direction. But all of them are good communicators, and of course I would take any of them as president over you know some of what we've had. But having said all that, let me identify these ten things that people are doing, not doing that will may, maybe be of help to you. First of all, Mr. Kasich has a bad habit, and so do some of the others, of talking into applause. When you are a political speaker and or, or let's say you're even just doing a sermon on a Sunday or you're speaking to any crowd and they break into applause, it's as though someone has joined the conversation. You don't want to ignore them. You don't want to keep on talking. It's particularly bad for someone who is a uh, a politician on television to continue talking because people are basically polite, believe it or not. And if you keep on talking, when they start to applaud, they will stop applauding to hear what you are saying and to not be rude. So when you are speaking and you say something that hits a positive note and people start to applaud, what you want to do is turn to the crowd and say something like, like what I'll often do is point at them and go, I agree with you. That is that is exciting. Or I won't make it about me. Let's say I've just said, uh, you know, I think America's greatest days are ahead of her. And they start applauding. Well, don't keep talking because, first of all, it dumbs down the applause. It numbs the applause, which, by the way, as a political candidate, you want to, <laughs> to have playing around your words. And at the same time, you'll back them off. It's as though you're saying, don't interrupt me. Well, you don't want to be that kind of... Uh, you know, that kind of tight in your speaking. You don't want to be rebuking them. You want to acknowledge their applause. So it's always great to turn to them and say, yeah, go ahead and and celebrate that. Or yeah, I I agree with you. That's exciting. Or somehow it's as though you've turned to a friend and said, yeah, I want to hear what you have to say. But you do not want to speak into applause. First of all, it's an uncomfortable moment. Second of all, you're probably not being heard even though you think you're saying something important. And third of all, as I say, you are causing the the applause to die down quickly when that's exactly the opposite of what you want. Mr. Kasich did that, and again, I'm not picking on him. He may be my my favorite guy on that platform. The second thing that you do not want to do uh, is have unusual hand movements. And again, Mr. Kasich, whom I, I admire, has an unusual habit of dropping his hands fully to his sides and then sweeping his hands up from below Uh, in order to make a point. And uh, I, I think that it's probably just a natural thing that he does. And my guess is that he prefers to be speaking without a podium so he can be fully visible. But this is what you don't want to do. What you want to do is you want to imagine a box that has your head in the middle of it and you want to have your hand movements either uh not happening or happening within that box remember that he's on television remember that he's behind a podium and it doesn't uh it doesn't work well to sweep your hands up or sweep your hands outside of that box in some way. Some people have their hands out too wide. Some people have their, like Mr. Kasich sweeps them up from from below. Uh, it's, it's distracting, and you need to be aware that you're on television, you're often in a box, and you want to move your hands somewhere above your sternum, right around your sternum, above your rib cage would be the best way to think of it. And of course, you never want to reach your hands above your head unless there's something goofy and funny going on. But imagine a box and move your hands within that box. It's very, very important. And and it also, by the way, for men who wear suits and ties, it can really do weird things with your suit. It's not going to make or break a presidential candidate, but Right now, everybody is in a competition. And unfortunately, in a media age, this is all uh, a beauty contest at this point. Uh, all those guys essentially believe the same thing. So uh, these, th- these things are important and they do help the communication process. I wouldn't spend time on them if I didn't think that it helps enhance somebody who already uh, has leadership ability and has communication ability. There, there is another factor too, and that is when you are in a debate like that, The audience is below you and your interviewers are below you and you don't want to make yourself look at them all the time because what it does is it drops your head. You want to lift your head. You want to lift your head up. Uh, The best view of anybody, the most inspiring view, the best view in terms of you know, multiple chins or whatever is that you are looking up. So look up at the back of the room. You always want to keep your eyes on the back of the room. If, if Megan Kelly is asking you a question, you look down for a moment, maybe you look away, then you you say, well, thank you for that question, and you move on. And But keep your eyes to the back of the room. You don't have to be looking at anybody. Uh, I listen uh, to a pastor friend all the time, and people are very engaged by this pastor, but I, as a, as a guy who counsels and coaches those who speak. I know that he's not looking at anybody when he speaks. He is moving his eyes from the extreme right aisle to the middle aisle to the extreme left aisle. His eyes never meet anyone else's eyes. It's something that someone taught him to do so that he would be give people the feeling that he's looking throughout the room when in fact he's actually not looking at anybody but you want to pay attention to that some of these guys don't look they don't look that great when they're looking down and then also if you look down and roll your eyes up you look like you're being disciplined or like you're a puppy in trouble or you could look sneaky uh, all of this stuff translates okay you you want to also and this is this again I'm showing you kind of the behind the curtain of the art of of uh, coaching people you want to control your face bear in mind that when you're in a debate like this you are likely to be on camera at any time. In fact, the press loves to take pictures of people, especially people they don't agree with politically, when they are not looking their best, when they think they're off camera, when they're cutting their eyes to the side, which makes it look like they're about to run off stage to steal a cookie. And you, you want to just always have your face in a pleasant look, even if, you're, if you don't think you're on camera. You also, connected to this, want to know your uglies. This is a term we use. Everybody has a look that's not great. Everybody has a position that's not great. Everybody—we all know—we've seen pictures from parties and, you know, photographs that we insisted that our friends throw away that make us look horrible. You want to know what that is? You want to know what it is, what, what view, what it is that makes you not look your best, and you want to not do it because in our modern world even at a casual party with a bunch of friends with cell phones, you're likely to be snapped at any moment. I'm not trying to make everybody, you know, vain and self-conscious, but, uh, the whole idea of someone being on stage in front of the largest television audience that has ever assembled for a political event is that by the way, you should be self-conscious. That's just how it works. Uh, you, you, uh, you want to be always sweeping your eyes Across the room. I've already talked about not looking down all the time. You want to look up at the back of the room, but you want to be moving your eyes left, right, and center. When, what, what many of you won't know is that when folks are on TV, especially when they are remote, like we, let's say you watch uh, Chris O'Donnell and uh, you, somebody is not in the studio, they're coming from Los Angeles or they're coming from Dallas, they are usually in a room, a dark room by themselves, looking in a black box. Uh, nobody's in that room with them. The engineer is in another room and they are completely on their own. They have an earpiece that says, into in, which a producer is saying, hi, this is New York and we're coming to you in five seconds. The same thing is similarly true when you're on that stage. Those candidates are looking at the three interviewers. They probably can't see very many people in the audience. The audience is probably black. Uh, I don't mean racially, of course. I mean, they're, they're blacked out. So you want to sweep your eyes uh, as though you can see them. It's not deception. It's what makes it look like you're addressing. It's as though your face is saying, I'm talking to all of America. I'm talking to everyone. I am not just having a conversation with Megyn Kelly because she's cute. I'm looking across the entire room. It's a, it's a good art to know. It's a good art to think about. Even if you're just speaking to 20 people in a conference room at your, at your company, you want to move your head from one side of the table to the other, look at the far end, figure out a little pattern if you have to, if, if it makes you nervous, and simply... Move your head around so that it feels to everybody like you are engaging them as you speak. Okay. There are. Uh, this is all going to sound. Some of you will just go, oh, "Come on, this is not the essence of it." But I'm. But I'm telling you, poll after poll after poll, study after study shows that some of these things make a huge difference. You'd be shocked at what people won't vote for. You'd be shocked at who they won't listen to. I'll, I'll give you example. Another example of a small thing. Um, Jeb Bush, who is a fine man and well, I think will make a fine candidate, as will most of those guys on that stage, uh, should take off his glasses. Why? Because people can't see his eyes, and the eyes reflect the soul. The eyes are what people connect to. Uh, when they can't see your eyes, they think you're sneaky, um, or they might, in some cases, if you wear a certain style glasses, Uh, think that you're a, you know, a nerd, a brainiac, uh, not someone who connects with human beings, but the little granny glasses on Jeb's nose all the time are not, are not serving him well. They keep his eyes from being seen. They are not made quite right. So they reflect the light and he is a decent looking guy and, um, somewhat athletic and, uh, he should engage with his eyes completely. Uh, it's basically the same function as when, someone you love or like or hang out with is wearing sunglasses they may look cool but you're 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 having less communication with them you are less um just less connected bottom line so it's fine believe it or not the, the The conventional wisdom is take off your take off glasses that are thicker rimmed and then put them back on if you need to read people don 't mind seeing you with glasses or without glasses, but if you wear glasses all the time, the eyes are hidden in fact, there's actually a little bit of a power thing to putting glasses on it means you 've got two modes: battle mode and study mode, and people kind of like knowing they 're both there in fact, for some people who might be extremely good looking or have unusual faces, putting on glasses actually. Um, can soften it up a bit and remind people that you have this other side of you. You, One of the things that almost all of these guys do at, at certain moments is they, maybe it's because they're not prepared uh, in some cases, although that's not likely, but they tend to hunt for their answer. They talk until they find their answer. And what you want to do is state your answer up front and then bolster it. So if Megyn Kelly says, why do you hate America? Um, then your your response is now, now, come on, Kelly. I've been hearing that for so long. No, no, don't don't wind up to an answer. Say right up front. That's untrue. I've, said, I've always said it's untrue. It's a lie that started in the LA Times. You know, just boom, put it out there. And then go to what else you want to say. But some of these guys talk themselves to an answer. And by the time they get there, we're tired. And it's not, a, it's, not, it's not a good way to go. One of the things that is most missing with Republicans, I have to say, is the, 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 the style, the manner that I call Happy Warrior. You want to be a happy warrior. You want to be thrilled to be in the fight. You want to be glad that we're running for office. Isn't it great that we're all here? Isn't it wonderful to see all these very competent men who want to help change the country? This is America right here on this stage. You want to be the happy warrior, which means you want to use some humor. Now, I have to tell you the other night at the, at the, at the debate we all saw on television, uh, Ben Carson was really left out. But when he had a chance, he used some humor and he got one of the best laughs and got some of the best replay afterwards because he used some humor. Now, quite frankly, there hadn't been a lot of attention to him in terms of his ideas. But when he joked about you know, the, being one of the only people who um, had removed half a brain, I think he said, and, and, and until he got to Washington and found out some people had been living that way for a while, um, that was a great moment. And it got replayed as much as any of... Trump's idiocy and, you know, it was positive. So we need humor. Humor says to people, hey, you know what? We're going to be okay. Uh, it's like a, like a dad joking with a kid who skinned his knee, you know? Hey, don't kick that sidewalk. The kid might laugh and say, dad, but what does he mean? He means I'm going to be okay. Dad, dad, dad's joking. It means I haven't lost a leg. Laugh, relax, be humorous. Don't be angry. The angry right, right wing um, is people are weary of it. And to have people shouting at each other on the stage, uh, you know, how about some fun? How about some laughter? Everybody up there is high-charging, hard-driven. Uh, who's a statesman? Who's got a big heart? Okay? There's, there's a, two final things then. You never, never, never want to attack your interviewers. The interviewers represent the people. The interviewer, the questioner, for the most part, in a television broadcast, um, represents the people who cannot speak for themselves. When I'm sitting there watching that in my office or with Bev, I, I can't. I can't speak to them. So the interviewers are asking the questions theoretically, or at least they're sort of supposed to be representatives of me. Attack them, and it feels to the people watching like you are attacking them. The people watching. So you always want to be kind. You always want to be gracious. You always want to say. Something kind, so but thanks for that that question Kelly you know that I'm, i th- I really appreciate your courage in asking that, and it gives me a chance to clear this up you know suppose Trump had said, you know Kelly, i'm really glad you said that because i 've said some things about women i I wish i hadn't said, but at the same time, I was talking about some people who hold certain values, and yeah, I got angry, and I apologize, but uh Kelly, you know women like you who are who are Putting their, uh, you know, their opinions out there and, and are, are standing for truth and and trying to do good in the world and, and uh, helping our nation be more informed. I admire women like you, and I would never use such language about them. Now, you know that would that would that would have escalated the whole thing, and we wouldn't have spent a week having to hear about menstrual cycles. So you always want to be pleasant to the interviewer, unless. They've just crossed the line, in which case take their head off and take their head off fully, but don't be small and don't do insults and don't say you haven't been nice to me. That sounds like the playground. The final thing is this, and it's the, it's the, it's the counsel I most give uh, to politicians in particular, but it also is important for CEOs and even, even military people. And that is, it's going to sound a little bit gushy, but people respond To your love maybe not of them but of your cause so uh, in that debate while we don't want to have a lot of flag waving a lot of empty patriotic gush we do want to know if these people are just driven control freaks or egotists i think we can tell that at least one of them is but we want to know if they love do you love your country what got you here what makes you tick What's got you going? You've all been successful. You could all retire now. Why in the world would you run for president? You know, really only one of these guys is actually running for president. I mean, only one of these guys is actually going to go all the way. The others are running for a bigger piece of the pie or a chance to be heard or a chance to influence hearts or who knows, a bigger salary in some corporate setting. I don't know. But what will distinguish them is love. I love my country. I love our heritage. I love what I see in America. I love this, I love that. You don't even have to use the word. But who up there is a statesman driven by love of cause, love of purpose, love of God, love of country, love of, love of heritage, uh, gratitude for what this country did for me, any of that kind of thing. And who is up there just to bully, uh, just to advance their own careers? Uh, or who is up there angry and wanting to bash I think uh, we shouldn't be afraid to talk about love. And when I talk to the people that I counsel and uh, coach in communications, I don't try to turn them into you know, a preacher or, or, or a poet. I do think that at some point in every event, there should be a moment where people can connect with the fact that you are motivated by this transforming, engaging, inspiring force called love. And that that's why you are there. We want to talk technical. We want to talk stats. We want to understand that you have the competence. But at some point, tell me that you care. And I think that's the important thing. Now, all of these are just techniques. They don't make a statesman out of somebody who's not. They don't make uh, give somebody to say uh, something to say uh, if they don't already have something to say. But all of these people are leaders. All of these people have something to say. All of these people are competent. What's going to distinguish them is that they connect with the American people and that they show uh, that they are the kind of person that can be trusted in the Oval Office and that will lead the country, communicate. Uh, I frankly think that George W. Bush was a much better leader than he was given credit for, but quite frankly, a lot of that was his own fault because he was a bad communicator. And then I think we've had presidents who are great communicators and are empty suits. So all of that to say, it all has to be packaged together, from the glasses to the tie, to the shine of the shoes, to the research that you did, to the way you studied in law school, uh, to how you have led, uh, to what what your message is now, to the way you hold your notes, to the way you handle the interviewer, it's all part of a package. And trust me, we're going to be hearing a lot about it in the coming year. Stephen Mansfield is a New York Times bestselling author, a popular speaker, and a frequent faith and culture commentator on CNN, Fox, and the Huffington Post. His groundbreaking books on faith and society include The Faith of George W. Bush, The Search for God in Guinness, Mansfield's Book of Manly Men, and The Miracle of the Kurds. You can learn more about Stephen at stephenmansfield.tv and greatman.us, and connect with him on Facebook, and on Twitter under the name Mansfield Writes. The Stephen Mansfield Podcast is produced by Isaac Darnell, who also wrote, performed, and produced the Rockin' Podcast theme song. Be sure to rate the Stephen Mansfield Podcast in the iTunes Store. This is a Chartwell Literary Group production.